everybody, and welcome back to Puck University. I'm your host, Tim Williams, joining you from down in the Tampa Bay area in Florida, and joining us, as always, from the New England area, our New England correspondent, Chris Lynch. We've got a lot of hockey to talk about. We're going to get straight into it. I'm just going to have to rip the Band-Aid off. We talked a lot about the big weekend that was ahead for Boston University with a home-and-home against Northeastern, and they got three points from that home-and-home against Northeastern. Right before I hit record, we started talking about this. Chris, something happens when Boston University plays Northeastern where they start to play a more intense, more physical style of hockey than BU is used to. And to their credit, that is how you slow down a team like Northeastern. You have to punch them in the mouth. I mean, yeah, and and it's a nice turnaround for BU to see that they actually skated with people and they got some decent bounces and they got some shots on. I mean, they got for just the Thursday night game, 50 shots went on goal, which means that Caden Primo made 45 saves on the night, which in, in a, in a more just world, uh, he probably gets that win. So for just style of play, I mentioned this, I, I told you this right before we started recording. BU has the capacity to play a physical game against anyone, if they want to or if they need to. I think that's part of the reason why they've been such a dangerous team in the sport for a while, is that they can do they can play a bunch of different ways. You know, they can play with speed and skill, they can play with grease up front, they can play with uh with precision and spotting up pucks and passes at the dots and bringing it down below the dots they can do a bunch of different things but it comes out as a more physical style against northeastern providence and bc but bc those games are always going to be physical bloodbaths because they're ancient rivals and they don't like each other that persists to this day those games are always going to be pushing and shoving and more physical kinds of play providence is built to have a more defensive orientation, or at least last year they were. They've been a bit better offensively so far this year, but that program is built off of being able to play a very physical style of game. And Northeastern, partly, they've built up a reputation of playing fast, of playing skilled and playing, I won't call it reckless hockey, I'll call it aggressive hockey, of flying up the ice, defenders breaking the puck out pretty well setting it up to the opposite blue line and having your forwards just skate like crazy. So you need to play more physical. So yeah, the style of play does bring it out of them, but also these teams just don't really like each other that much. That sounds a little simplistic, but really I think if you ever asked Jim Madigan, the school that he's had the most run-ins and the, the hardest battles with, I'd be probably say BU. I think you've mentioned this to me before that BU is probably the biggest, uh, uh, rival that Northeastern has from just their own experiences, though it does depend on what when you went to Northeastern. It's either BU or BC. For a lot of people, it's BU. I, th- I think it's just these teams don't like each other that much. Well, and I'd throw into that, it does depend when you went to Northeastern, but if you look at where Northeastern's good teams have been in terms of when they've been particularly good, more often than not, they're up against BU more than BC in those kind of situations. Of course, then there's 2009, where Northeastern had this wonderful regular season, 
only to find that BC was their thorn in the side, but really it is BU more often than not. And especially now with Jim Madigan as the coach, he of course had some battles with BU as a player as well, but as a coach, it always seems like he in particular leaves the building pretty sore in these games with BU and it could be the physical play because this is not a style of play that Northeastern under Jim Madigan has really utilized before Madigan. That was really what they were known for is being able to be that tougher team in hockey East, that team that will get physical with you. But now they don't really do that. They are a skaters team. They're a speed oriented team and a skill oriented team and BU is kind of providing the blueprint for how to take on a team like that. You have to punch them in the mouth. But the question is, is there a line and has anyone crossed it? Because these games are getting from the fun physical to now getting to be the scary kind of physical game. There was a major penalty assessed in Saturday night's game. BU did a great job killing off that penalty, by the way, and that's why they won four to one. And that was really the difference in that game was their great ability to hold off that particular penalty. But the major penalties, the near fights, the inherent chippiness of these matchups, it's getting to be a bit much. And it's, of course, last year when Northeastern swept BU during the season, those games were also very physical, very heated. And you have to start to wonder if one or both of these teams needs to calm down before someone gets hurt. I mean, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're still at a point where the regular season matchups last season were definitely kind of pushing it a bit. And in fact, uh, Patrick Harper caught Ryan Ruck with a stick that knocked him out for the basically for the year with a concussion and gave Caden Primo the starting netminder job. That Northeastern had been planning to get Primo more time in the lineup and maybe even make him the starter that year. But that series in early November against BU, the there was the reversed home and home with the first game being at BU, the second game being at Northeastern. That first game at BU, Primo came in in replace of Ruck and has owned the starting job ever since. So yeah, um, they're definitely pushing it a bit. I think we're still... Maybe I'm just a little bit more biased because because BU ended up uh, with the better end of it, but I think that they do need to pay a bit more attention to it and be a bit more careful with it. But I don't think we're there yet where we should be terribly concerned about it. And by the way, about Madigan being angry after after these kinds of games when they don't bounce in his favor, both nights he went down for his press conference. He gave an opening statement explaining uh, what he thought of the game, just his general thoughts, and then no one asked any questions. The first night, he was angry because he, he in his words, uh, that was not a good tie. Now, that's a game that we should be disappointed about. That's a game that we should win. Credit to be you, but that is a game we should win. And he walked off without answering a single question. And the next night, or the next game, it was two nights later, was similar story. But yeah, Madigan takes this stuff personally. And I can't say I blame him. 
these games uh, these games are relentless. Now, here's where I will say it's gone too far and why I'll say it's gone too far, because you could say that both of these teams, and, and it is both of these teams, played undisciplined, maybe a little too chippy, got themselves in a position to do some things they shouldn't be doing on the ice. But you know who put them in that position more than anybody else? The referees did a terrible job in these two games. It, now, it's a tough job being a hockey ref. I couldn't do it. I'm not going to say I could, but man, that's a rough weekend for the hockey East referees. I, I think that it wasn't just the physical play because there was also a reviewed goal that I don't know if I can even explain it. Would you like to take a crack at that one? Do I really want to? Cause I, yeah, it's one of these sequences that was just unbelievably stupid. So this was the, North the game at Northeastern at Matthews Arena. This was the uh, this was the Thursday night game. So happened in the second period, and Patrick Schul, very good player, um, he came up the rush on the right side. He fired a shot that looked like that it uh, caught the net on the bottom of the bar, and that should have been a goal. But the official wasn't back there in time because he was trailing behind the play he thought even though you didn't you couldn't hear the sound he thought that it had hit off the bar and it bounced out because to try and be fair it came off the net so quickly it came back from behind ottinger so quickly that he thought it just bounced off and they ruled it a play on well play didn't stop for another two minutes 30 seconds until they were able to review the call again because in that situation, unless you have something that something else that happens, if you call a play on, you have to play on until there's actually something that pauses the game. Like if the puck goes into the stands or something like that. And there wasn't such a call for two minutes and 30 seconds. So play finally stops. They, um, it's just kind of crazy. Play stops. They, Go to review whether or not, because Jim Madigan is livid as well. He should be because it was a goal. They go and review it, and they look at it, and they say, yes, this is a good goal. They add two minutes. They put the score up on the board. Northeastern's ahead 3-2. They put the two minutes and 30 seconds that had elapsed since then back on the board and so we have to play essentially a full game that went into overtime with an additional two minutes of 30 seconds because the official was out of position. So yeah, it was really stupid. It was one of the uh, it was one of the plays where I get it that stuff sometimes happens, but that's a call where you gotta make that. So yeah, uh, we don't normally talk about the quality of officials, and I'm sure that the refs would rather us do so but that was a that was a bad sequence for our friends in the stripes well i try to give the striped ones a bit of credit because again hockey happens extremely fast if you're watching it from a bird's eye view you don't necessarily catch things when they happen so imagine doing it when everything's right up close and as a hockey ref you're also trying to stay out of the action you're trying to not get caught up in the play itself which is sometimes difficult in and of itself so 
I do want to give the refs some credit there, some leeway. But when you have a bad game, and players will have them, coaches will have them, so of course refs will have bad games too. It just it came on a bad weekend to have a rough time for refereeing because with these two teams playing so physical and playing so heated, it could kind of get out of hand. And on Saturday, it seemed like the refs lost control of the proceedings pretty quickly. They didn't know who to assign penalties on. And I think both teams could have could easily walk away from that one thinking that they didn't necessarily get a fair shake from the ones in stripes. Now they will in later games. It's only going to be that weekend. Refs will come, they'll go, they'll have good games. They'll have bad ones, but that was a tough time to have a bad weekend. And fortunately for the refs, everyone's still okay. So, you know, all's well that ends well and well-played hockey for BU to get their first win of the season on Saturday in that 4-1 win at Aganis with the pressure on credit where it's due. They played a good game. They played the game they needed to, and they killed off a tough major penalty late in the game. Yeah, and it's the first victory of Albie O'Connell's career. And also, funnily enough, he got a bench minor fairly late on into the second period for unsportsmanlike conduct because he was berating the officials about uh, a couple missed calls and so they assessed him a bench minor which well well welcome to the welcome to the bean pot war Albie. it's it's going to be like that where uh, it's going to it's going to get like that but really i think northeastern if if we're going to look past uh, the physical play of it and just look at the stuff on the ice beyond the hits I think Northeastern should be disappointed after the weekend because they – you can make the argument that uh, for the Saturday night game, they played well enough that they probably should have gotten a point out of it, but Jake Ottinger had an amazing game. And then on Thursday night, Northeastern should have won. I don't think there's many ways to cut it. Northeastern absolutely should have won, particularly with Caden Primo's Stealing a game at a lot of points with 45 saves, but they had they gave up three third period goals in what was a beanbag war, and they should have shut down that game. But they gave up another shorthanded goal, this one in earlier on in the first period, which they've given up a lot of those. They've given up a lot of shorthanded goals. It's the most they've given up four. So far on the season, that's most in the country. And you're going to have a hard time winning games if you're going to give up those kind of things at major points. So credit to BU as well, but Northeastern should be disappointed after that weekend with some of the ways that they played. Yeah, I after last week, I can't say I didn't warn people. This just seemed like a scary weekend. You, I, I didn't like that BU came into this, this series with no wins that just seemed once I saw the zero in front there, I expected, yeah, BU's going to get their first win this weekend there. That's again, it would have to have come against Northeastern. Of course it would. So uh, I, I think from, from a Northeastern fans perspective, I absolutely agree. They should have won Thursday night. That's the one they should be kicking themselves over. And again, for a team with such a good power play to have five minutes and all that all that anger over the last couple of games having built up and to not score when you've got five minutes of a penalty, that shows that while they've shown some brilliance this season, beating St. Cloud State at home, 
it's going to be a tough road as hockey East always is. And as it's going to be this year, because as we pointed out, that is a wide open conference. And this last weekend just made it look even more wide open with BU kind of getting a little bit back to form and Northeastern slipping a bit. And at least one game they should have won another one. They should have been a lot more of a factor in and moving on. We talked about what a bad weekend it had been on Com Ave. It's still not getting a whole lot better for the Boston College Eagles because they went through Harold Parker State Forest up to the woods of North Andover. And like BU before them, they left Lawler licking their wounds. It was a big game for a Merrimack program that they're going to be toward the bottom of hockey East this year. There's no doubt about it. But they're showing a little bit of something early on in the season. You don't want to go in the Lawler. We've been saying this for a while, but I think maybe this year more than ever, you really don't want to go into Lawler needing a win. Yeah, funny how that ends up working out. But, uh, I mean, Merrimack, so far, they're 2-3 and three in conference play. A lot of their games have come in, come in conference, excuse me. They have four points. I mean, that's tied with Providence, and Providence has only played two games. So we're we're still at that point in the year where you don't pay that much attention to all the standings. But I think if you're a Warrior fan, you got to be happy with the way that Scott Boric has had this team playing. I mean, hosting hosting Lake State, who ended up being really good competition and getting playing pretty well, going to Bentley and getting a good win, playing well against Army. Most of the games that Merrimack has played have been pretty close. Even their couple of Hockey East losses, except for the one against UMass in Amherst, was most of them have been close. They lost in overtime pretty narrowly, and they still gave a decent fight in the 4-1 loss to BC. And they picked off a 2-1 loss in a place where Lawler hasn't been as hard for BC as it has been for other schools lately, like, like BU and like UMass Lowell, but that's still a tough place to go, particularly with how strange the pacing of the game was. There were only three goals the whole night. One of them came in the first from Derek Petty. One came, two came in the second, one from Tyler Haight to put Merrimack up to nothing. One for Logan Hutsko, who I still think should be a, uh, really, really should be a much better player than what he's been so far. And, it's just it's just disappointing to see the BC offense continue to struggle. Each team got 32 shots, 19-18 in the first period to Merrimack, 11 to four for Merrimack in the second period, and 10 to two for BC over Merrimack. And that one period in which they got 10 shots, nothing got through Merrimack goaltender Craig Pantano. So I just have more concerns about BC having periods in which their offense just completely falls off the face of the map, which that's, that's concerning. So yeah, uh, be concerned for BC, but at least they got their first win on Saturday. So, and they looked pretty decent while doing so with four consecutive goals to make it four, nothing by the eight Oh three mark of the second period. So I think there is still some bit of positives to take out of the weekend for BC, but I think fewer than what BU got from the Northeastern series. And to, to that point, I want to just mention something that's become a pattern in hockey East, especially with these Boston schools over the last few years that 
a slow start is concerning and it can hurt a team later on as it did to BC last year. But a slow start is also something from which you can rebound as BU will knows very well after a miserable start to their season last year, they ended up winning hockey East with that fantastic late season surge and the hockey East playoffs where they were just amazing. Northeastern did it a couple of years before in 2016 after a disastrous schedule up until Thanksgiving, they turned on the Jets and they were one of the best teams in the country the west rest of the way. And BC's had these slow starts the last couple of years. They've rebounded to be one of the factors in the Hockey East Conference. So it's something you can rebound from. It's something that with a well-coached team, and certainly Jerry York is unimpeachable at this point, that they can come back. They can be very good, but it's certainly concerning. It's alarming. And if you look across the country, I think without question, Boston College's start has been the biggest disappointment for any one team and what and just as a sloppy transition here, that might be the biggest disappointment, but the biggest surprise, and it's not even close. What a weekend at Pagula Ice Arena. This is this is what the new college hockey programs look like, ladies and gentlemen. Let me take you through it. On Friday night in in State College in Happy Valley, Hockey Valley, whatever you want to call it, Penn State coming in as the number six team in the country took a six to five. Yeah. Six to five with Penn state. Just imagine that one game over Arizona state who, wow, Arizona state and Johnny Walker, they are something to see. And then Arizona state got theirs on Saturday in a four to three overtime win. We talked about how much fun these games were going to be and they lived up to it. And then some, and by the way, who ended up scoring that game winner for Arizona State in overtime in the second game? It was indeed Johnny Walker, his 11th goal of the season, which is the nation's uh, highest total. And he has 17 points overall. So that's he's the leading goal scorer. He has 17 points and 11 goals in 10 games played. Six of his goals coming on the power play. I mean, I don't think the jump for Arizona State really could have been that much better than what we've got so far. And I'll throw the caveat on, this is early still in the year, and there's a lot more to be written and a lot more to be determined from what Arizona State can do. But this is a wicked team. This is a fun unit to watch, and it's up-tempo, fast-paced hockey. And what's what's kind of interesting about it is that uh, just for the shot totals, 43-25 to 25 for Penn State in the game that they lost, 40-31 to 31 in the second game, the game in which they won. And they, uh, and Arizona State had a chance to cut into that game a bit more. Walker had a goal with a minute and 35 left to play in regulation time with the extra skater on and Penn state escaped without there being uh, an empty netter or escaped without there being another goal that went through them. And by the way, for our concern about the earlier series, 
Not a lot of penalties, at least for the first game. There were a couple more, but no major ones. Just all of them were two-minute minors for the normal stuff you would see, like tripping and holding and roughing and all that kind of stuff. But this was pretty clean hockey. This was fast hockey. This was intense hockey. This was fun hockey. And you can only hope that the fans at Arizona State take to it because they've got a really interesting team. And if they keep up with pace that they've played with so far, they keep up with how entertaining this Matt, uh, this this can be for them. They draw Sparty next this coming weekend, and then they go to Harvard the weekend after. Which I know I'll be catching at least one of these games. I, I want to see what what Arizona State can do in person. This is a fun team. I just hope that other people I'm gonna keep hammering this point. Please, please, other schools in that area jump in. Arizona State needs someone else to play, and this is an untapped college hockey market. And we need to expand this sport here more. It is. And just going through Arizona's schedule to this point, Arizona State's schedule to this point, sorry, Arizona State, that in all their games against unranked teams, that'd be two against Alaska, two against Huntsville, and two against Nebraska-Omaha, they haven't just won. They've won convincingly. They shut out Alaska in both of those opening games at Oceanside Ice Arena, the appropriately named Oceanside Ice Arena in Tempe, Arizona. The They played Alabama-Huntsville. They won 2-1 to one on the road in the Von Braun Center, and then they finished that series winning 5-1 to one on the Saturday game in, in Huntsville. The Nebraska-Omaha over that weekend where they played them at Oceanside winning 6 to 3 and 7 to 2 they have three losses on the season here are the three losses 3 to 2 at home against Ohio State number 1 team in the country when they came in also 6 to 3 Ohio State swept them they looked like Ohio State in that second game and then the and then a 6 to 5 loss at Pegula on Friday night that that fantastic game at Penn State. Not only have they been winning their games, but against the good teams, yeah, they're one and three, but they're one and three, or rather one, two, and one. I guess if you want to do the the, they are one and three against these teams, and only one of them was a blowout loss. And that was against an Ohio State team that might be one of the best teams in the country and came into the season as one of the best teams in the country. Yeah, what a good run for them to this point. Their schedule does get a bit more interesting as let's run through a little bit of it just before uh, up, up till Christmas time. So they get Sparty and Michigan State has been surprisingly good. Then they go to Harvard, a team that plays into their strengths because the Harvard Crimson have very good offensive potential. They have the third highest scoring offense through not that many games because Ivy League hockey just started up pretty recently. But Harvard's defense has been atrocious. They're the worst scoring defense in the nation through their first three games. And they're still sorting out their goaltending situation. So that's a series where Arizona State can put up some goals and outskate a crimson team that that could combine for some really high scoring skating they go to nebraska omaha shortly after thanksgiving they have a they have an off week and then they're at princeton which you know more speed more skill more offense then they get colorado college to end off their round before 
they have uh, before Christmas time. So this is a weird bit of time. And though, by the way, those three teams that they're they'll end up playing in a holiday tournament, Clarkson, and in their first game, which will be on the twenty eighth, they they then could either play Minnesota State Mankato or the Duluth Bulldogs. And I think both of them, they offensively at least, they can create some chances. I just want to see what they can do defensively. But this is a fun team, and this is a really curious team for the rest of their schedule for this bit of the calendar year. You mentioned Minnesota State. That's a good place to go next. They had one of the premier matchups of the weekend, a series with Minnesota, and boy, did the Mavericks look good. They went into 3M Arena at Mariucci, 5-1 to one on Friday night, a convincing win over a very good Minnesota team. And then they won at home, 2-1 to one on Saturday night in Mankato. They moved up. They were the number four team in the, in the USCHO ranking. Now they're the number three team, 7-1-0. They look great. They look every bit as good as they were last year. And what a season. We've talked about the rise of the WCHA, and no team is more emblematic of that than Minnesota State. I do have to ask for just one question about whether we might be overranking the Golden Gophers a little bit to this point in the season. Just because they're 1 3 and 1 so far this season, and they're still number 14 in the USA Today ranking, and they're number 16 in the USCHO poll. And I don't know. They're a, they're a team with a losing record, and I get that their losses have been to big, high-powered schools. But I don't know. I just feel like we're missing something with uh, with this team. But that's not to take away any bit of what the Mavericks were able to achieve. That's just I have my questions about uh, about whether or not this Gopher team lives up to the standards of that program, particularly with two bench miners going against the Gophers and both of them for too many men on the ice. That penalty is of particular concern just because that means you're not following the action or rhythm of the game as closely as you need to, or you lose track of your matchups and lose track of who you have on the ice or have some bad changes. Maybe they're just scuffling. And I hope for their sake that they are just scuffling, but I don't know. I feel like this it does confirm that Minnesota state has made the transition from the CJC team of last year. And Jake Jeremko and Parker, uh, Parker Tuomi have made the transition into being the real leaders on this team, at least among them. But I can't help but have some concerns about the Gophers coming out of the series more than praise for the Mavericks. Yeah, fair enough there that, it might have been a matchup that's a little bit inflated by early season rankings. And to your point about Minnesota's start, I think they're still a very good team. But when you're doing early season rankings, you know they're not going to be worth a whole lot. You know it's more a power ranking at this point. So why not reward the teams that are getting off to stronger starts as opposed to the teams that you just expect are going to be good later on? Because when they are good later on, you can vote for them in the polls. They can rise up the polls. But if they're going to start slow, you shouldn't really have them that high. At least that's my opinion as someone who's not a voter in any of these polls. Well, to give them credit, they at least they at least have rewarded a couple teams that have been uh, I mean, well, they, uh, to give them a little more flack for a second here, 
they're kind of doing the same with the Michigan Wolverines. They had a great run to the Frozen Four last year and 4-3-0 and early on in the season. And some of their losses have been concerning. Maybe I'm putting a little bit too much stock into that upset on opening weekend against Vermont because it's early on in the season. But that's a team in which Michigan was probably the better unit and really should have ended up winning. But they barely edged out a 6-5 win over Western Michigan, lost 5 to nothing, then went to Sault Ste. Marie and ended up falling 5-2 to to a Lake Superior State team that, at least from what I saw in out of them last year, the Wolverines really should have a lot more success and probably are a bit more talented than that Lake State team. So I think you could throw, at least this is for just the bottom of the, uh, of the 15 that they have in the USA Today polls and for some pieces of the USCHO poll, but I can't help but feel like that they get a bit more recognition because of brand name. Certainly. And looking at that USCHO poll, something else stands out at me because we've been talking about this team as a possible contender, but a team that we think might regress a little bit. There's only one team in this poll of 20 right now that doesn't have a loss to its name. Denver. Denver is 5-0-1. They're the number five team in this poll. I think that's about right for them, the way they've played so far. But Denver doesn't have a single loss. They looked really good this last weekend at Magnus against uh, against Western Michigan. And this is a Denver team that they're going to be a factor once again this year. We know how brutal the NCHC is, and as that schedule really kicks in, as it will this week when they're playing St. Cloud State, we might see a little more of a truer picture of Denver. But early on, they have done exactly what they've needed to do after a a weird start for Denver, of course, where they they had a stutter to begin the season, but they haven't lost. And at the end of the day, that's what matters most. Yeah, I'll go ahead and eat a little bit of crow on that. Uh, on, <laughs> I think I, I was the one out of the two of us who was saying that uh, that Denver would probably struggle in the transition. But no, David Carl has done an excellent, excellent job making the transition. And in part, Devin Cooley has done a really nice job in, in uh, uh, sliding into that starting goaltender job. 23 saves the second night against uh, against Western. Gave up three goals, so not the best performance. But the night before, 26 saves made, two goals allowed. In a game in which his offense really ran pretty efficiently. Jared Lucas Savage has, has looked really strong. He had two goals in this game. Actually, no, excuse me, strike that. He had a hat trick in uh, that first game against Western Michigan. Liam Finley has six goals through the start of the season. So there's still big pieces of that championship team from 2017 and last year's NCHC winner that are making big headway for the Pioneers and have made that transition a bit easier for David Carl to step into as the head coaching role filling in for, uh, for Coach Madigan. But yeah, it's a really strong performance. And I don't think I could look that much higher and say that they should be bumped up that much. I mean, maybe you could make an argument for them jumping over Minnesota State or maybe maybe Providence. I don't see them jumping over St. Cloud 
or Duluth, which, by the way, continuing a theme here, three of the top teams in the nation are from the NCHC. You know, continuing that trend of the NCHC being a bloodbath conference. Well, on top of that, here's Denver's next few weeks. They're in Herb Brooks to take on St. Cloud State this weekend. Number two. That's a tough pair. They then go home to Magnus to play Duluth. Currently number one in the nation. They stay home. They play Providence for two games, the number four team right now in the poll. Well, number three for the USA Today before for the USAHO, but yeah, one of an- another top five team. And then they go to Engelstad to take on a North Dakota team that's coming off a sweep themselves right now and looking like they're flying high as well. So it, they don't really get to rest until after their Christmas break when they're at Merrimack and at Mass Lowell. So you want to know how strong Lawler Arena is. We're going to see it on December 28th when Denver comes into there. If they can make a close one of that, then maybe Lawler is just a tough building to play, period. But wow, what a few weeks for Denver. The number five team in the USCHO poll goes against the number two, then the number one, then the number four, then the number 11. The NCHC is just brutal. And then you got those two out-of-conference games with Providence to make it even tougher. I mean, this is where you actually determine if you're a championship team. Because those are all teams that the conference teams are ones that they're going to have to beat if they want to win the conference championship. They're going to have to go through the octagon if they want to win the conference. And they'll probably have to, They well, maybe not probably because of how seeding can be kind of weird in the hockey tournament, but there's at least a very good chance that they'll have to play and beat Providence at some point in the NCAA tournament to get to a national championship. So I think that the way they'll probably look at it within their team is, yeah, it's going to be hard, but we sign up to go to Denver to win these kind of big games. You go to the big programs because you expect to win these kind of games. And I that program still has Jim Montgomery's kind of swagger about them that they expect for the Denver Pioneers to win those kind of big games. So that's how I think that they're probably going to shape it for themselves, and that's probably the anticipation that they that they need. Particularly that St. Cloud's going to feel the same way, and um, I mean, especially after they started, they reversed course and got themselves back into uh, back into good graces with their win on the road at Denver's rival in Colorado Springs this past weekend. We've talked about some fast hockey teams, some high scoring hockey teams, but maybe the best action of the entire weekend, as much fun as those games at Pegula were between Penn state and Arizona state, Notre Dame and Ohio State played a pair of conference games in both of them in South Bend. One nothing Ohio State on Friday night, two to one Notre Dame on Saturday night. This was a display of defense. This was a display of goaltending. And this was a display of two teams that we expect to be in the NCAA tournament come March. And that first game. The uh, the only goal came via a power play for the Buckeyes. Mason Jobst got got a goal eight fifty nine into the game, and that was the only scoring that was had. 
Buckeyes outshot the Fighting Irish 8-3 to in the first period, got outshot the rest of the way, but it was an even shot battle, 23-23. to Kale Morris looks pretty good again. Sean Romeo looks pretty good again. So I think that if you're just trying to read the box score and just trying to pick up what games you should be interested in, this game wouldn't grab your attention because it's just kind of a normal, it happened college hockey game, which it's re- it was really entertaining from you know, the kinds of chances that they got and the hits they had, but this isn't the game you'd start with. In fact, really the next night is the one you'd want to start with. Ohio State with 39 shots compared to Notre Dame's 38. Two got through for Notre Dame. They didn't start scoring in this game until the second period, and they didn't get the game winner. Notre Dame got the game winner with just under seven minutes to play, or just excuse me, just a little bit more than six minutes to go. There were only five penalties committed between the two teams, and Cal Morris was spectacular in net again. This is more a game that you would want to jump into if you're learning the game as a fan, uh, but. It's probably the best played hockey because it's more precise, it's more clean, it's more you know, technically sound defensive performances. And this is the kind of thing that you learn to like more as you become more of a hockey fan. Not to say that the popcorn spectacle in Pagula uh, is any less entertaining or less fun to veteran hockey people because it always is you know that kind of offensive fireworks will never get old but you're right about this being a really good showing of a the quality you can get out of the big 10 even though the both these teams are four three and one and you would think that they would have uh, uh some disappointment about their records but i think that's more of their schedules to start this year have been a little bit brutal but I think they're both uh, happy with putting on a good showing and knowing that they'll run into each other again come tournament time. You know, just in our conversation so far in this podcast, there are a couple of names that just stick out at me, and it just shows you how long hockey season can be and, and how much of a grind it can be. That I hear names like Mason Jobst and Jared Lucas Savages, and I think, what are they, seventh year seniors? They feel like they've been part of their programs forever and they still have NCAA eligibility left. But to hear that they're still doing well at these schools, like hasn't Mason Jokes been at Ohio State since Ohio State started playing hockey, it feels like? It feels that way. I mean, well, when Lucas Savage has had his hat trick in the national championship game, which, by the way, yeah, hat trick in uh, the national championship game for a guy who was undrafted in his eligible year. He was a sophomore. Two years ago, he was a sophomore playing behind really some of the best talent that the sport had to offer with, you know, Troy Terry and Gamble and Will Butcher. No, he was playing behind some of the most wicked talent and he was the difference maker in the biggest game of the year for them. And now he's one of the leaders on that team. And, He'll get signed to a contract. It's a good reminder that you know sometimes four-year players are good guys to pick up coming out of uh, coming out of college. And Mason Jobs, senior as well. They they they've both been around for a while. You're right about that. It feels like it's they've been around for a while longer. But in part, we've just we've liked what we've seen, and we didn't want them to leave yet from from their schools because we like the sport so much. 
just kind of a cool position for uh, to see these guys. And it's a nice reminder of you do need some program players to keep some stability there. It reminds me a little bit of the high-end teams on the women's side of college hockey where they get these seniors that it seems like they've been at the school for a lot longer than their eligibility would would indicate. I'm still surprised when I look at the Northeastern women's team roster and don't see Kendall Coyne on it because it just seemed like she would play at Northeastern until she's 50 because that's how women's hockey often goes. And, and it's fun to see that kind of stuff on the men's side as well, because as you said, you need that program. You need those guys to really have the long-term buy-in. You can't just win having guys halfway to the NHL. And really you can't help get those guys to the NHL if you don't have that veteran leadership on your team. So a good job by Denver keeping their guys in house, a good job by Ohio state keeping their guys in house. And you see that all over the country, the teams that don't just recruit well, but end up getting the best results. They always have a mix of those fantastic young guys and the guys that have stuck around and have been part of the program and know everything there is to know about that coach and about that team. I mean, it's a great way to develop people. I think it's part of the reason why college hockey is gaining in uh, the number of players it sends into the into the pros. They're they're one getting more high end players who otherwise would be going and playing in the Canadian juniors. They're getting more high end players from across the pond over in Europe, but also, I mean, they're just developing guys. Jobs to Jobs and Lucas Savages are two are two examples of players who have really developed in their time. I don't, I mean, neither of them were really big time recruits or big time like prospects or players in their junior days. Lucas Savages was completely undrafted. He's still a free agent and look at a nice contract from someone looking for a, uh, for, for a good, uh, a good size power forward score. If, well, if those still exist in the national hockey league, which come playoff time, there's certainly a job for him. But it's a good sign of really good health in, in college hockey that there's guys that you can recognize. But you're always going to have some people who will be one, maybe two-year players and make the jump. I mean, really, since Paul Correa did that in the 93 year at Maine, it, that, that, it's really been normal ever since then. But yeah, Correa wouldn't have done that much on that Maine team if there weren't a Jim Montgomery to balance him out with so that uh, he could learn the ropes of the sport and truly dominate. It's a great balance, and you see a lot of the teams that are in the rankings, they have that kind of mix. Well, and you mentioned the undrafted players. That's something that when you look at the rising level of talent in college hockey, it's easy to see the stars that come out of it, the Hobie Baker winners, the fantastic talents, guys like Jack Eichel, guys like Will Butcher that end up in the NHL and you're sure when they're still in college that they're going to be really successful in the NHL and say that that's an indicator of the rising level of talent in college hockey. But the real indicator is how many of these guys that go undrafted end up being 
pretty good in the pros. You see it almost every year now, and you see some people who end up winning the Hobie Baker Award who weren't drafted when they were eligible, which just shows that not only are these programs recruiting great players, but they're developing great players as well. And it's it, both of those things have to go together to win on the highest level of college hockey. Or at least weren't drafted high. I mean, Ryan Donato, for example, was a was a third round pick of the Bruins, which that's not a low round draft pick. It's not it's not a first or second round pick either. Well, Butcher was a fifth round draft pick of the Colorado Avalanche, and Colorado made barely any attempt to sign him after his term was up, which is strange because the Avalanche probably needed a defenseman like him in order to. Uh, re-improve improve their blue line at least i would think so but he's been a really good player ever since joining new jersey god adam Gaudette was not uh i don't remember exactly where he was picked by the canucks but he was not a he wasn't a first round pick if memory serves for them so you need guys from all different uh, all different calibers and the other thing that's nice to see is that more different schools have high caliber high draft players like UMass Amherst they have two blue liners who were first or second round draft picks Kel McCarr was number four overall Mario Ferraro was a second round pick and more different schools have those kinds of players and are also getting more of their own contributions from lower down in the roster so balance of powers just spread out a bit more well, and that's what a rising talent level will do for a, for a sport is it spreads it around because you can't just collect all the good players on a few programs like you could maybe 20 years ago. So it, it's great to see that for college hockey, and it leads us to a common refrain here on Puck University, which is please other schools, 60 is not enough. Join the ranks. Develop Division one college hockey programs. Look at Penn State. Look at Arizona State. It doesn't take long, and you won't be disappointed when you do. You'll be getting some of this talent for your own. Look at Johnny Walker Red and Gold over there in Tempe. Let's just hope that people actually follow up on the sales pitch. But, uh, I mean, UNLV, Grand Canyon, other schools in the West – this would this would be a really nice way for them to you know, pick up and develop their stuff. And also, I'm sure that if you were to go to our good friends at with the Wildcats, the University of Arizona, and let them know, hey, so you know the Sun Devils have a hockey team. I'm pretty sure that some of them would look at it and go, wait, what? They have one and we don't? It's just an opportunity for us to beat them. And we could be better at that, right? You know, that would be fun to see. Well, you know, that'll take some time in order to develop it. But as of right now, at least, sports in a good position. And uh, it's just the, the the three leading scores right now are really the five at the top of it. The schools that they're from. Johnny Walker is the leading goal scorer and leading point producer in the country with 17 points. He's from Arizona State. Kale McCarr is among defensemen. He's the leading scorer by a lot. He has nine assists for 13 points. He plays at UMass Amherst. Parker Toomey, Tuomi, it's spelled T-U-O-M-I-E. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I'll go with Toomey for right now until I'm told otherwise. Junior forward from Minnesota State Mankato with 13 points. Max Johnson and Brandon Cruz from Bowling Green. Bowling Green does have a national championship in their background, but that came in 
1984, and Bowling Green almost folded their team in the 2008, 2009, 2010 range because the program was in dire straits and was at not and was the basement of the CCHA before they reinvigorated their program. So the top five scorers in the country are playing at Arizona State, UMass Amherst, Minnesota State Mankato, and Bowling Green. It doesn't take that long to get those kinds of programs in and get that kind of talent into uh, into your program. And they're coming from a wider swath of the country and the world at large as well. It's an exciting time to be a college hockey fan. And I think it's time to transition into what's coming up this weekend. We're recording this on Wednesday and the action gets started Thursday night with a couple of hockey East games. Vermont at Boston college will be something to watch just because of the dire straits. BC has been in to start their season, but the real headliner here is Providence the class of the Hockey East Conference so far versus that plucky, really good University of Massachusetts Amherst team led by McCarr and with Coach Greg Carvel. I'm going to be there in person. This is a game that at the start of the year, I penciled in thinking this could be a pretty interesting game. This could be kind of a bellwether game for the Minutemen. I am hoping that they jammed the arena to the rafters. I'm hoping that the Mullen Center is packed up because that school in the 90s when their basketball team was going was one of the hardest places to go into as, as a visiting team when Calipari and uh, Marcus Camby were running the show there. That school, when they get going, that can be a Just very- a quick correction. According to the NCAA, that never happened. Yeah, I'm not the NCAA though, so uh, so we're gonna go with it. But anyway, so uh, I I saw the tape of it, so the the records might be different, but uh, the film says a different thing. So I'm gonna go with what the film says. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, that place can be hard to play in. And UMass beat Providence last year at home. With they had a couple empty net goals, made it a six three victory for them uh, last year, and also a game I got to see, but. That's just kind of a curious matchup because if UMass at least pulls off a split, because they got a home and home on the Thursday and the Saturday, it's kind of like the BU Northeastern matchup from last week with just how the scheduling works itself out. It's, it's a fun unit, fun couple of units to match themselves up with. UMass Amherst has a goaltender who's seized and owned the job and Matt Murray and Hayden Hockey is going to match him pretty much for shot for shot. And this is just, this is a curious matchup because I think UMass should be regarded as one of the top teams in the conference. And here's their golden opportunity. They don't have to win the series if they get a tie or something, or they look really good and skate hard with Providence. I think that'll you know increase their profile a little bit, but I, I mean, I'm someone from the outside saying that, uh, they don't have to win, but in that locker room, you had better believe that Greg Carvel is looking at his unit thinking, we should win this this game on Thursday. And it is one of the weekend's signature matchups. We already talked about the, the biggest one of the weekend, Denver traveling to St. Cloud State, and that will be a lot of fun to see. North Dakota takes on Miami in a b- battle of some ranked teams 
over the weekend. That will be good. The NCHC heating up. We've talked about what a gauntlet that conference is. Even the teams toward the bottom of that conference have numbers next to their name and are dangerous week in, week out. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And I think it's time to just remind the Golden Domers that college hockey knows your secret now, Notre Dame. You've always been a Big Ten school at heart. You are a Big Ten school. You fit into this conference so incredibly well. And everyone in college hockey sees it. If only they could drop the pretense in every other sport. Because Notre Dame and Michigan this weekend. And in I don't care what sport they're playing. If Notre Dame and Michigan play and you like college sports, you really should put an eye on that one. And you remember how these teams played in the Frozen Four last year, right? It was a last-second victory that ended up going Notre Dame's way in just a remarkable showing between hockey programs that don't have a lot of history between each other until 2008. Because Notre Dame, they struggled for a while. They dropped their program from Division One to a club level for a bit. And they didn't really become a big-time program or a big-time competitive program until really 2004. Five, six, when Jeff Jackson came on board. But he's ever since then, it, Notre Dame has been a worthy opponent and a worthy program to be atop the, you know, atop the rankings. And Michigan, they've got some things to work out on their own end. I mentioned earlier, I kind of railed against them being up in the top, uh, you know, up in as high in the rankings as they are with them just hovering above 500. Well, this is a perfect weekend to you know get them to shut me up. A couple tight games at home against your ancient rival. That'd be a great way to reinforce the fact that they're one of the most talented units and give Quinn Hughes some opportunity to one-up on his brother, even though his brother will probably be the number one overall pick this year. So yeah, keep your eye out on that on that series at Yost Ice Arena. Got a big one brewing in the ECAC, too. Quinnipiac, who's been a real tough team throughout this early season. They're number 13 team in the latest USCHO poll, and that makes this the tightest ranked matchup of the weekend because they're taking on number 12, Union, on Saturday. Union, it's a tough weekend for the Dutchman because they also have to play Princeton at Hobie Baker Rink before going to Quinnipiac. So it's a it's going to be a prove-it weekend for a union team that has looked really good to this point, and a Quinnipiac team that's also looked extremely good. If they can get that win in Hamden, they can establish themselves as maybe when we all looked at the ECAC, we kind of took Quinnipiac for granted. Well, I mean, part of that really is just Quinnipiac last year had a very bad year. And after I got to see them play Harvard, in which they won 5-3, they noted after that game with the start that they had been on, they had been undefeated to that point. They ended up losing 5-1 to one at Dartmouth, which that's pretty bad because uh, they're probably at least a little bit better than Dartmouth. But 5-1 uh, is not very good, which, by the way, congratulations to head coach of the Dartmouth Big Green, Bob Gadet. That 5-1 victory was his 400th career win as the head coach of the Dartmouth Big Green. So just as a very brief thing, congratulations to Coach Gadet and a program that does prob- is a probable upset team in the ECAC. But on Quinnipiac, they were thoroughly embarrassed 
for how bad last year went because they had the defensive ability last year and had some decent goaltending with Keith Petrozelli, who six five but played at a buck sixty, a buck sixty five or seventy, and was a twig. He's added on a bunch of muscle, and now he doesn't get fatigued as much. But they actually have the offensive punch to go along with it. And they all said after that Harvard game that last season, guys who were there last year were embarrassed for how poorly they played. And they brought in a big crop of new freshmen, the 12 freshmen for the Bobcat class this year. And Rand Pecknold is having an effect on them already. That's a, that's a good and fun unit to keep your eyes on. And Union, Union's in a similar kind of position as well to Quinnipiac. They have been, those two teams have been standard bearers for the ECAC for this whole decade. They've been, I think they've, they've got four frozen four appearances between the two of them between 2012 and 2016. So they have recent success and they both have the potential to really be big players in the conference again this year. You know, it's a, it's a prove a time for both of them. It should be a really good matchup this weekend. It is a, as it always is in college hockey these days, it is a busy weekend for college hockey. Chris, where will you be this weekend for Inside Hockey? I'll be at the home and home between UMass Amherst and Providence. That'll be Thursday at the Mullen Center and for, and excuse me, Saturday at uh at schneider arena down in providence then thursday i'll be at uh, northeastern but for the matchup between the excuse me friday i'll be at northeastern for their matchup against the university of connecticut huskies and i'm expecting some good things out of mike cavanaugh's team frankly i'm expecting better things from that hockey team than that uh uh that new arena deal that uh, has been discussed that we forgot to uh, have a discussion on last week yeah it's worth talking about a little bit that last week the university of connecticut came out with plans for an on-campus arena in stores if you're if you're one of the hockey fans out west and you haven't really been to the area just know that stores in hartford are not as close as they look on a map. It takes a while to get from one to the other. So it would be a great move for Connecticut to build this on-campus arena, but there are some questions about it because, Chris, when you look at the proposal, it seems a bit underwhelming. Yeah, and I should note as well that as a native of the state, I mean, I was born in Winchester, Mass., but I, we, my family moved down to Connecticut when I was nine months old. So I am really a nutmeg state native. And for, for all my being a BU person, having gone there, I'm really from Connecticut. My parents still live there. My brother still lives there. This topic of building sports arenas with public money is a very sore topic for the state of Connecticut. The Hartford Whalers in part moved because there was a, contentious debate between then owner of the whalers and eventually the hurricanes peter carmanos and then governor of connecticut john Rowland and the connecticut state legislature about opening up the books to either renovate the xl center which is the arena in downtown hartford or to build a new building completely 
And then they also had a deal in place allegedly to lure the Patriots away from from uh, the Boston area, from Massachusetts, and move them down to Hartford. So this is a sore topic in general, but the total cost for the building, $45 million. And what would that get them? A 2,500-person arena on campus when Hockey East, unless you are Merrimack or unless you're, some, uh, unless you're a smaller school, uh, the Hockey East general requirement is a 4,000 person building this place would be only a uh, 2500 person arena and uh the total by the way the student enrollment on the main campus at uconn it's a 26,000 person campus 1900 under uh, excuse me 19,000 undergraduate students and they're thinking of building a 25 Hundred person arena for forty five million dollars. That is raising a lot of eyebrows in the college hockey world. And I, if I'm a legislator in the state of Connecticut, I'm probably voting that down because Connecticut's economic position is really bad right now. So I just don't think that's a good proposal, and I don't think it's a good position to put a really good coach in Mike Cavanaugh in at this point. Yeah, it's going to be it, it's going to be a rough stretch and there really hasn't been anything in the week or so that since that arena has been planned that's come out but we're going to these things take time to develop and that's at, we talked about it after we recorded last week you asked why we hadn't necessarily touched on this and I said these things take a while to develop and can change but until it does, this is an alarming state of affairs for Connecticut because that's not a great arena that they're planning to build. And you have to do it right. If you're going to do something like this, you can't miss. You have to do it right, and it can change your program. It can change the atmosphere around it really quickly. But if you don't do it right, you're just left with a high price tag and a lot of questions as to why you even bothered. Yeah, and for a little bit of com- context, UConn, which is primarily a basketball school, their men's and women's programs are the most basketball teams, are the most successful and the most eye-catching programs on that school. They have an on-campus basketball facility at Gam- Harry A. Gamble Pavilion, 10,000 seats, 10,167 to be exact. The proposed plan for $45 million to build a 2,500-person arena with possible expansion expansion plans to build up to 3,500, they would still have some games at the XL Center. And by the way, on that whole arrangement, I got to ask Mike Kavanaugh earlier on at at, uh, Media Day earlier this year. He actually really likes getting to bring the guys into downtown Hartford to play games there because the attention is undivided. The focus is on being a hockey player. They're away from campus. They're not going to party. They're not going to do anything stupid after the games for these home series. They get a place at uh, the Hilton Hotel, which is right across the street from the from the building. They're there, and it's also good professional prep. Now, these guys are going to be, if they're professional hockey players, they're going to be in that kind of set- setting. The Coach Kavanaugh has actually said some pretty decent things about that setup for whatever it's worth playing at the excel center it does need to be renovated but that's something that that can be done but 
that proposed on-campus stadium, which they do, they really should have an on-campus building, but not for that cost, not in a state that is doing so poorly financially. That just lost GE in, a, in big ways down in Fairfield County, and they lost a lot of that offices and moving up to Boston. Aetna has said that they're going to move out as well. And Connecticut is not doing well fiscally right now. So to have that high a price tag for that unimpressive a building, that's a bad position to put a coaching staff like Kavanaugh's that's really done a good job in transitioning UConn to Hockey East. That's a really poor position to put them in. Well, and you've mentioned Kavanaugh does not have a whole lot of problems with going into Hartford to play their home games. It's part of the culture of their program. If you've heard much about Connecticut's hockey program, you've probably heard the phrase ice bus. It's not just some kind of a metaphor. They actually do have to hop on a bus and drive 40 minutes to play their home games. And that does give them a certain focus. It does kind of put them in more of an NHL-like position of having to devote an entire day to every home game. It, it has helped them in a lot of ways and it's helped give the program a personality because of that phrase that just lingers around them, the ice bus, but you always want to have an on-campus arena as opposed to an off-campus one. And as the winter drags on, it becomes harder and harder to make that 40 minute drive and it becomes longer and longer as the snow piles up as well. So I hope they get this sorted out. I hope they get the arena they really deserve, whether that's in Hartford, which seems a stretch to me, but I don't have that much experience with the, with the University of Connecticut, or whether it's in stores where they've done so well at Campbell Pavilion and basketball side all these years. And they, they need an on-campus building in stores. You could probably draw – their basketball team has a setup where they play the majority of their home games on campus. Because that's always where you're going to draw the biggest amount of your support is on campus. Maine does something somewhat similar to this. To this, it's not anywhere near as big, but they play the majority of their games at the Alfond, and then they play a few of their games in Portland, so that people who are alums of the school or fans of the school and the team in the southern part of the state, just because Orno is really far up there, that they can have a better opportunity to get to see them. It's something like that. But they need an, they need their own on-campus facility. They, they probably do need some work to be done at the Excel Center, but that's all going to be handled through the city of Hartford and the gov- and the uh, state of Connecticut, which is a bad group to put your hands in. The, those two entities have been doing very poorly lately, and considering how the Whalers left, considering how the Patriots scorned them, and considering the boondoggle that building their recent uh, minor league stadium was Hartford is not a good place to try and propose a big amount of money to be spent on the sports stadium right now and also by the way Gamble Pavilion was built in 1990 and expanded in 1996 that's the basketball facility on campus the construction cost was 28 million dollars adjusted for inflation that'd be 52.4 million dollars in 2017 dollars 52 million got you a 10,000 person basketball arena which is a very good arena and they do a very good job with it. Apparently 45 million would get you a 2500 person hockey arena. I get that the facilities are intrinsically going to be different 
that you need different facilities that you need some bit of cooling in order to keep the ice cool. But an 8,000 person difference for the number for the size of the building that you can make, that is a terrible design that that has to be a bit different. Well, we talk so much on this podcast about how we hope that the field for college hockey could expand to include more schools and more teams. And unfortunately, the reality that sits between our hopes and get actually getting what we want is always money. It is expensive to field a college hockey program, especially for the first time. And to grow your program, to get these arenas, to, to build up what you need to do, it costs a lot of money. So you have to hope, not just from Connecticut's perspective, but from college hockey's perspective, that this can be done in a way that provides a positive example to these schools like, for example, Illinois, who is getting increasingly close to trying to go Division One in hockey, it seems like. It, you need to be able to look at success stories, and the more failures that are out there, the more schools are going to want to back away from something that could just drain their wallets and drain their resources. So when a team does something like this, it sends a message not just to Hockey East, but to the whole country. So we are all rooting for Connecticut to get the arena they, they deserve, the arena that suits them best, and the one that provides the best example for all these schools that we wish would adopt the sport. I mean, you can only hope that uh, things end up working, working the way that they really should because this school, this school has absolutely the capacity to support a hockey team. The fans for their playoff series, or well, the fans for their team last year, they traveled very well to BU for a very good playoff series against the Terriers last year. Those are good fans. Those are great fans. And it's a, it's a state that in some ways is starving for more hockey after the Whalers left oh so long ago. And they had a very brief run of being in the playoffs in the late 80s and the early 90s. Then they ended up leaving in UConn has the opportunity to fill the hole in a place where there's a lot of really good competitive high school hockey that's played in that state there there's an appetite down there just hope that it works and illinois is probably going to go division one if uh if they probably just need to raise a bit more so that they can fund the whole thing they're hoping for a terry pegula up there penn state has become the gold standard for these kinds of transitions to Division One, UConn isn't making that tr transition. They've been Division One for a while, but they were transitioning from Atlantic Hockey to Hockey East, and that is a that it's not the same jump, but it, it's kind of a similar sort of thing. And I think UConn does, or at least they should, have the money to be able to put forward a better stadium than uh, than what the deal has been so far. And there's been a lot of backlash against it. I. I hope that they sort things out, and I hope that uh, I hope things work for them. I hope things work for my home state. Well, and that's another point that that's important to mention that a school like Connecticut that is really successful at one of the mainstream college sports, by which of course we mean basketball, they need either to play the teams that are at, at the top of the heap or to be 
one of the teams at the top of the heap because they're competing for eyeballs and attention with a basketball program that especially on the women's side is highly decorated and they get to play the best teams in the country regularly. So Connecticut had to get out of the Atlantic. They had to move to hockey East with these larger well-known in hockey local rivals. And by the way, it can rekindle one of those outside of hockey rivalries because in the nineties, when Massachusetts, no, we, we have to pretend they didn't play basketball for that period, but when they did theoretically play basketball before it was erased from history, they in Connecticut, boy, those were some of the best matchups of that period of college basketball. And you kind of want that atmosphere. You can't wait to get that atmosphere between Greg Carvel's program up in Amherst and this ice bus. The U game. Marcus Camby always referred to, from Hartford, Marcus Camby, the star center for the Minutemen, he always referred to it as the U game. Now, you can only hope that uh, that would be one of the uh, premier attractions. And it's a state where hockey should have – hockey does have a real following. There's a community for it. A lot of it's in the south because uh, three of the remaining Division One hockey teams are in Fairfield – are in are in either New Haven or uh, in the Fairfield area. There, those would be Quinnipiac, Sacred Heart, and Yale. And we very recently in 2013 had a Frozen Four with Quinnipiac and Yale that ended up playing in the national championship game, Yale winning the whole thing. It's a state that will support it. And I've heard some talks that they might strut, that they might do some kind of in, in-state tournament. Um, they might do that, but uh, College Hockey News had, uh, had on their podcast, they had Boutrigras on, and we're discussing the potential for that being a whole thing. But uh, it's a state that should support it. It's a school that really should support it. And it's a place that um, they care about their sports. And they've had a lot of success, even even beyond their basketball teams. They've had a lot of success and produced some really good players like George Springer and Matt Barnes are both world champion baseball players. They came from that Husky team. But their football program is a money pit right now because of how much you have to put in for a football team and how poorly the Huskies are performing. That would be the only concern financially for that UConn program right now. Okay, and just as one final note before we sign off here on Puck University, I think now that you mentioned it, we do have to talk a little bit about this. I'm reading off a tweet. This is from John Butchergrass. Yes, the guy that has issues with spelling college hockey. He I was asked a question about whether a Connecticut Beanpot, Quinnipiac, Yukon, Sacred Heart, and Yale will happen. I would say yes, and probably next January. Now, of course, because of his ESPN ties and because of his love for hockey, John Butchergrass knows quite a bit about hockey in the state of Connecticut in particular. So if he thinks that it could happen as soon as next January, then there is something to this, either real or imagined. And we talked not too long. We had a recent special about all the tournaments we wish we could see in college hockey and other college sports. We didn't mention a Connecticut bean pot, but other than the name, which I'm sure both of us have our issues with, that's a that's quite a tournament I want to see. I mean, yeah, it's one where everyone would get a shot at each other. I'm sure that there would be uh That'd be fun. You think you'd probably play it in Hartford or you play it in Bridgeport if you ever want to give uh, the Southern, uh, the 
southeastern part of the state to have some of their games because that's where three of the teams are. I'll spice it up a bit. How about you play it in Hartford, and instead of fight songs, whenever any goal is scored, whichever band's team scored it plays Brass Bonanza. (laughs) You are playing to nostalgia and uh, to the experience of Connecticut hockey from back in the day, and I am totally cool with that. I mean, you probably would have to play some of them down at Bridgeport just because that's where a bunch of the teams are, at least that's closer to where three of the teams are. And one of them is – only one of them is in the northwestern – excuse me, the northeastern part of the state. The other three are in the southwest. It's just, just thinking of some of the logistics at least for how that would work. But that is a tournament I absolutely want to see in part. I'd like to see Sacred Heart have a bit more success, but also really we're, we're all here for Yale Quinnipiac, right? We're, we're all here to watch them duke it out, right? Yeah, that Merritt Parkway rivalry is is one of my favorites. In it, it's those unique to college hockey rivalries that we love so much. And I mentioned it; I love that road, the Merritt. So I personally just really like that series because it reminds me of the best driving experience in the Northeast. Boy, you didn't try to drive it when it was in high traffic because if you're just going for casual drives, it's really pretty. If you ever attempt to drive it in high traffic areas, it will be the bane of your existence. It's worse than driving in Boston. The only thing I'll say about that. But but yeah, the Merritt Parkway rivalry, or as, as they frequently refer to it, the Battle of Whitney Avenue is one of those that we would absolutely love to see. You can only hope that uh, those two teams would put on a good showing, and I'm sure that they will. You also only hope that UConn actually gets the facilities that they need in order to improve their program. And same thing for Sacred Heart. You really hope that those programs improve themselves so that uh, it could be a long-term matchup and a long-term you know, long-term state rivalry which i hope bucci's right i hope bucci's right that it happens probably he, he he said it would probably happen in january was that if it were ever to happen yeah the tweet he said it he thinks it will happen as soon as next january so it's not that okay. he's saying he thinks it will happen next january but it could as soon as next season it would be presumably in january so we certainly hope it happens and and while we're talking about the guy he might come across as goofy at times but nobody tries harder to get people to care about college hockey so we all thank you very much john buchibras i love bucci i got to meet him last year at the uh at the bu union season opener for uh for last season he he's such a nice guy he and he genuinely cares about and loves and loves this sport so I think the world of him uh, for, for, any, uh, for any bit of personal stuff. And I probably will end up getting some of his college hockey paraphernalia with the funny spelling for some people for Christmas presents because, you know, that would be fun. And I want to promote this sport a little bit. So, yeah, great. I, I'm just happy that uh, we've got someone at, the, at still the biggest sports network who's promoting this stuff. I think we need more people like that. It, I I couldn't agree more. And by the way, folks, if you're if you really want more college hockey merchandise, what you can do, and maybe we'll be able to help you out on this, is if you follow this podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and help us grow this thing, then maybe soon we can offer some merchandise of our own 
just help us get to that point, please. And thank all of you who have helped us get to this point, because it's always fun to talk about college hockey. We've gone on a bit long, even by our own standards this week, but this has been Puck University for Chris Lynch up in the Boston area for InsideHockey.com. I'm Tim Williams. Keep your head up, ladies and gentlemen, and your hits clean.